Well, good morning, everyone. It's our last time together. It's been fun to be here with you guys. Let me, uh, let me pray again as we get started. Father, it is, um, it is hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that you, creator of heaven and earth, in all of your power and all of your majesty, have decided not only to involve yourself with us, but to, to want us, to choose us. But the evidence is clear. We've heard, even in the stories um, of this week, the evidence of your pursuit, how you have um, chosen us and got a hold of our lives in spite of ourselves. And each of us could stand up and tell our own story of how you brought the circumstances to bear and the people into our lives that you used to get a hold of us and to allow us to see the truth and to bring us to the point where we have been reconciled with you in Christ. And now, it's not enough for us just to enjoy the relationship with you, to uh, be grateful for how you've blessed us. But we now join you in your search and rescue of many other people. So we ask that you would show us how, how to be a part and what we need to do. Speak to us, we ask this morning, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are considering the amazing fact that God wants us, first of all, to be reconciled with him and then to join him to be his ambassadors. Now our guide has been the book of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, we looked at the three reasons why we are perfectly suited for this job. We are not plan B, we are plan A. And next we considered the primary method that God uses to change the hearts of people around us, and that is to build authentic relationships with them. That was chapter 2, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then last night in chapter 4, we talked about the one thing that sidelines us from doing our part, being ambassadors, and that is we lose heart and eventually give up. Now I want to skip ahead to chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians and look at the fact that God does not want us generally, He wants us specifically. Let's say it in this phrase, God would say, I want you, not somebody else. We, we tend to have this idea that, you know, the hand of God, this image, yes, it, it points to us, but then it points to someone else and it points to someone else. And we're not the only ones that God wants. And so we get this idea that God kind of generally wants all of us. And so there's nothing particularly special, unique. It's amazing, but it's, it's nothing like if God had decided that you were the only one he wanted on planet Earth. Well, that that would say something. So we tend to think of God's pursuit of us, his relationship with us, kind of in general terms. But in this chapter, Paul makes it really clear that God has a role in mind for you specifically. Yes, he loves other people. But when it relates to you and as it relates to them, there, there's a role, there, there's a, a job that he has for us to do that, that he's designed us to do and a role for us to play that nobody else can do. He wants us uniquely, specifically. As I've said before, I think these three words, God wants you, are the three most powerful words that anyone could hear. The creator of everything, heaven and earth, has called you by name to play a critical role in what he's doing in this world. Now, do you understand what that means? What that means is that you have value beyond belief. But what tends to happen is rather than look up to God kind of with outstretched arms and amazement and gratitude and accepting 
the fact that he really does want us, we often tend to point to somebody else and say, yeah, but I really wish I was them. Imagine what that sounds like to God. While he's saying, I want you, we're looking over at somebody else and saying, well, I, I wish I wasn't me. I wish I was more like them. I wish I had their job. I wish I was able to go on the vacation they went on. I wish I had their marital, marital status. I wish I had their money. I wish I had their abilities. I wish I had their nose. I wish I had their degree. I, you know, it goes on and on. Why do we do this? Well, it gets back to the impact of our sin. Our, our sin isn't just that we've done things that are wrong. Our sin has fundamentally separated us from God. It's caused a break in our relationship. And even when that relationship is repaired in Christ, we have a long history and a long memory of that separation. And it's hard for us to operate now with a repaired relationship. And one of the consequences of this separation from God is that we are now cut off from the one who verifies our value. The book of Genesis describes us as being created in the image of God. What that means is we are like a shadow designed to stand next to the solidness of God. Next to him, there is no question about our worth. But separated from him on our own, we are left to find other ways to establish our value. A lot has been written about and talked about and worked on in the area of self-worth or self-esteem. But according to scripture, we really don't have self-worth. We have shadow worth. What I mean by that is our value is established by what we stand next to or in the shadow of. That's who we are by nature. So we simply aren't capable to stand independent all by ourselves and say, we're amazing. And we can say that, but it rings hollow. I once had a friend who had this, he bought this kind of, I forget what, you know, it was like a little teddy bear. And it was kind of a self-worth teddy bear. And you push its button and in the morning and it would say, you're amazing, you're great, go conquer the world. You know, it was kind of a joke, but it was, you know, that's kind of the, what it sounds like if we just all by ourselves try to pump ourselves up. You're great, you're amazing, you have value. And we look around and say, but we'd like to have some evidence of that. So we don't, we don't have self-worth, we have shadow worth. It's supposed to be God's shadow that we stand in. But without him, we need to find something else big enough to stand next to that we can point to and say, you see, we are important. We do have value. And so in the scramble for self-worth, we're drawn to kind of whatever seems big enough. And one of the big indicators is whatever draws a crowd. I mentioned before, you know, if you see a crowd, you see someone looking this direction, you, you have an indication that, wow, something important is happening over there. So if others are standing next to whatever that important thing is and pointing to it, maybe it's the beauty of somebody, maybe it's the money that somebody has, maybe it's the approval that they're getting or talent they have, then we conclude, well, that must be really valuable because look, everybody's looking at it, everybody's clapping, everyone's amazed at it. And that's why we tend to look at someone who is closer to us than the objects that we think would establish our worth and we envy them, we, we wish we could be them. We wish we could stand next to or as close to that thing as they are. Because then 
we wouldn't have these nagging questions about our own importance, our own value. But any sense of value or worth that's not attached to God is a false evaluation, a false sense of worth or value. And it will fail us eventually. It will fail us either by crumbling now or by crumbling when God wraps up history. If the thing we stand next to, if we, we live for to establish our worth crumbles now, well then our sense of value or worth crumbles right with it. But if it stands, if it lasts long enough until God returns to wrap up history or we die, well then it crumbles then. And only then do we discover and too late did we discover that the thing we were standing next to that was establishing our worth was really in the size of the scope of eternity. It was like trying to hide behind a blade of grass. It just wasn't big enough. It wasn't important enough. In fact, Scripture tells us that, that all of these things will wither like grass. So people will stand next to money or beauty or fame or intelligence, and they will get their worth from it. And if they never discover their value in God through Jesus Christ, God wraps up history and that blade of grass they're standing behind, huddling behind, suddenly withers in front of them and they suddenly realize that everything they attached their life to really didn't matter. It had no value. So trying to be someone else or wishing that you were someone else keeps us from doing what God really wants us to do. And that's what Paul warns of in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The key verse in this chapter is verse 12. We're going to take our time working through this, so let me read it to you. Paul says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. It's a very kind way of saying they're really stupid. Don't do this. Now, the word for, of course, not wise in Scripture is foolishness, folly. And I want to share with you this morning the three C's of a foolish self-image. Paul mentions them in here. They are this, classify, compare, and commend. And they work in this order. That's why they're listed in this order. First, we classify. First, we put everybody in categories. We do this so that, secondly, then, we can compare ourselves to them. And the purpose behind all of it is so that we can feel good about ourselves, so that we can commend ourselves, so that we have something to point to and say, you see, we, we do have value. So let's look at these in order. First, we classify. The New Testament is written in Greek, and the Greek word here is a compound word, like many Greek words are, and it's made up of two words. The first word is a fixed place. The second word is to judge. So... The definition of this word means to assign a fixed position or category to someone. That's what it means to classify them. We put them in a class. We put them in a category. Now, we do this all the time. This is partly how we just evaluate people around us. We, we classify them, put them in a category, put them in a box. In, in, our, in my church, word has kind of gotten out over the last couple of years that I've taken up road biking as a, as a hobby. And so the individuals who have selected that same hobby, they've been asking me questions uh, over time. Um, questions like, well, what kind of bike do you have? I had one individual here ask me, so what, what kind of bike are you riding? Great question. Another question is, so are you clipping in? You know, uh, if you're serious about biking, 
you don't just use pedals. You have shoes that have clips on the bottom and pedals that you clip in so your feet are locked in. It took me a little while to learn that because you come up to a stop sign all of a sudden, whoa, and you fall over and crash because your feet are locked in. But if you're a serious biker, you're clipping in. Another question is, are you wearing those spandex bike shorts? <laughs> the answer, I'm embarrassed to say, is yes, I am. Now the reason they ask these questions is because they're trying to put me in a, a class, in a category. Okay, you say you ride a bike, but how serious are you? What kind of bike is it? What kind of equipment do you use? And that actually can be a very helpful thing. Because there are some guys that were trying to get me to join them on a bike ride, and I asked a very important question. That is, well, how far do you go? <laughs> it's a good question. 50 miles. Okay, well, I can do 50 miles. How long does that take you? Three hours. No, I'm not, I'm not going to be joining you. I'm not up to that class yet. Okay? That would take me about four. And then they throw a coffee break in there and still do it in three hours. So I'm not at that class yet. You see, if I hadn't asked that question, I'd said, oh, sure. I, I would have been lying beside the road somewhere, okay? <laughs> so it is really helpful to be able to accurately classify people in situations. It can be a very helpful thing. Like if you're working somewhere, it's really helpful for you to understand who's in the category of boss and who's in the category of coworker. Okay, you don't wanna, you don't wanna get that mixed up. You wanna understand who your authority is. It's an important thing. As you relate to people, you need to figure out over time, is this person a friend or is this person an enemy? So those are helpful classifications. So to classify is, is not a wrong thing. It can be helpful. But we often tend to use this classifying in a harmful way. Let me give you an example. Personally, on a recent flight, a mother, a couple seats up, had a young child, and she was flying with this child. And she, early on in the flight, lost complete and total control of this child. And I could tell it was coming because I, I observed her parenting skills and I knew where this was going. And I realized it was going to be a, a noisy flight because she had no control of her parent or of her child. And so as soon as this child began to melt down, I immediately put her in a class. What was the class? Bad parent. This is the classification I put her in. Now, was that my last thought about her? No, no, no. See, when it's harmful classifying, there's always a purpose to it. We never classify just for fun. And in this case, the purpose was to make me feel better about myself as a parent, to look down on her. See, that's the purpose of classifying people in lower categories, because it somehow adds to our value. It makes us feel better. And we're constantly looking for something to stand next to and say, see, see, we are important. Now, I'm a parent, so at least in this one category, I could shake my head and say, you know what, I, I would never be that bad. At least here's one person that I'm a better parent than. And that made me feel better about myself. Until the Holy Spirit reminded me of a trip years ago on a flight with our child. I'm pretty sure it was the Holy Spirit because it was a conviction. On this particular flight, we were flying from, well, we were flying from Orange County to New York, but we had to connect through Chicago. So the first leg of the flight was Santa Ana Airport to uh, Chicago. Our son was about three, and we took off. 15 minutes into the flight, I was bouncing him on my knees, having a good time, and he threw up all over the place. And it was, I just looked at him like, ah. <laughs> uh. And then we discovered that we 
hadn't brought, you know, I mean, it was packed in the suitcase in below us. We hadn't brought a lot of the stuff to change with him. So we took his shirt off, wrapped it up as best we could to try to seal the smell inside of that ball of yuck. And then for a, about a four hour flight, he didn't have a t-shirt and we smelled. And everyone, I know everyone around us, because I saw them and I remember they were looking at me and you know what they were thinking about me? Bad parent. And they had a point. I hadn't planned. We hadn't, we hadn't thought properly about that. So as soon as I thought of that, I realized, oh, this was an unfair classifying of this woman. Classifying only makes you feel better if you're in a different and higher class than somebody else. This is how some responded to Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. As I've mentioned, it was a challenging letter. Paul had to confront them on many things that need to be addressed. And so to help them feel better about themselves, they began to classify Paul in some negative ways. And Paul references them in this chapter in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says in verse 1 and then verse 10. Verse 1, he says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am quote-unquote timid when face-to-face with you, but quote-unquote bold when away. Why are those words in quote, quotes? Because this is what they'd been saying about Oh, yeah, that Paul, he's all bark and no bite. You know, he's, he's timid when he gets face-to-face. He's just a puppy dog. His letters, boy, he's real bold when he's not really here to back it up. And they're calling him a coward face-to-face. Verse 10, for some say his letters are weighty. See, this is quotes again. He's quoting what people have been saying about him. His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. What they're saying is, don't bother with what Paul said. He's all bark and no bite. Sure, his letters are amazing, but have you ever heard him speak? Oh, my goodness. It's awful. It's boring. I mean, I'm sure the rumors run around. I mean, did you hear the fact that he was so boring that one guy actually fell out of a window and died? (laughs) I mean, that's bad. I mean, as I've been speaking, especially as the day goes on, I've heard some of you gasping for oxygen and yawning, you know, that's, that's an indicator that, okay, it's late. But I have never killed anyone out of sheer boredom. Okay? Now, yes, Paul did raise the guy from the dead, which should say something. You can read about this in Acts, but not many people have killed someone out of sheer boredom. So why classify Paul as a bad speaker? What was the purpose behind that? Well, then you can dismiss what he said. Avoid feeling convicted and changing. See, the the pendulum of classifying swings both ways. We either feel better about ourselves than we should, or we feel worse about ourselves than we should. The problem with classifying is that God didn't create classes. He created individuals. Now, there are classes, but when you put someone in a class, you're just identifying a small part of who they really are you're missing a whole lot of who they really are. There's always more to somebody than meets the eye. You classify someone as boss or bad parent or boring speaker. You haven't summarized who they are. They're much more than that. The Corinthians thought that Paul was not that weighty in person. Well, now, at a distance of 2,000 years, guess whose words we're reading and whose names we don't even know. 
See, Paul, the guy who was so boring, some guy fell out of a window and died. <laughs> you, you just don't know what a person's impacts can be over time. So when you classify them, you, you, you're just going to miss. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know what, what's true about this individual. You know, that verse 10 we just read, for some say, who are they? Nobody knows. Nobody knows whose, whose words these are. But you know who wrote this verse? Oh yeah, Apostle Paul, we know that. Paul looms large on the history of the world and in God's kingdom. See, we just never know what we're looking at and what the future of this person might hold. So how can you tell if you're classifying as the helpful kind or the harmful kind? Well, that moves us on to our second point. Harmful classifying always moves on to comparison. First you classify, then you compare. The Greek word here, again, a compound word, means to stand beside, and then that same word, to judge. So the first was to put them in a fixed place, to judge by putting them in a fixed place. Then you stand next to them and measure yourself. So the definition is to stand beside someone and measure yourself by them. You use another person as the ruler to measure your life by. You compare yourself to them. And what this verse says is when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. When you use other people as a standard to measure your life, you're, you're always coming to wrong conclusions. There's two reasons why. First, people are dynamic, which means they're moving. They're not static. They're not staying the same. We are moving and changing. One of the qualifications of a standard of measurement is that it doesn't change. An inch today is the same as it'll be tomorrow. You know, if, if an inch is kind of a, a moving target, then it's not a good standard of measurement. How tall are, are you? Well, if the standard you choose is changing, well, then the answer is not going to help you. So when you measure yourself by a person, that person is changing, you're changing, and so the value that you derive from that measurement is completely inaccurate. It's not a standard. It's not an objective standard. It's a subjective thing that keeps moving and changing. People don't stay the same. So to compare ourselves to someone is to take a picture of one moment in time. One moment of where you are and one moment of where they are. But the fact is, a person's life is not, can never be summarized by a picture. A person's life is, is a movie. Let me show you a picture of my family in 1975. Now this is 75, so that was a weird decade. Um, there I am standing up there. I'm the oldest one. And this was the family picture. My family had a practice of sending these things out every Christmas. Now, we all look happy in that picture, don't we? Five minutes before, we were not. <laughs> the truth is that just before this photo was taken, that mangy little dog had thrown up. <laughs> I guess this is a theme in my life. Thrown up all over everything. And then my parents had gotten in an argument about what to do about that. And then I'd said something mean to my brother, and we'd gotten into a little fight. And then the photographer said, all right, everyone, pose, smile. We took a picture, and we sent it out. Now, as a family, we kind of laugh at this picture because we remember the chaos that preceded it. <laughs> but that photo went out to hundreds of people, and my guess is there was a number of people who looked at that photo and said, now, why can't we have a great family like that? <laughs> like, oh, they had no idea. 
They had no idea. Why, why can't we be a harmonious, smiling, enjoyable family? We're fighting all the time. Not like them. They, they just didn't know. If you order from the comparison catalog, you'll never get what you see in the picture. You have to remember that. You look at someone else's life, you see a snapshot of your life, and you say, oh, I wish I was them. No, you're not buying a photograph. You've got to buy the whole movie. And if you got the whole movie, you would say, oh, no, I don't want that part. I just want this one frame. Well, that's not the way life is. Your life isn't, their life isn't. Every picture is just one frame that is part of the overall motion of life. They all go together. So we're never able to compare our entire lives to anyone's entire life. You know, we, we want just one part of their life. You know, we want their money, not their wife. Or we want their wife, not their money. We want their car. We, we want their job, but we don't want their health. We, we don't want their past, maybe. We don't want their kids. But you see, it's a package deal. Life is a package deal. The second problem with comparison is that we all have different assignments, and so we all look different. I don't know how many of you saw the last Summer Olympics in London, watched much of it, but you saw evidence of this on display. I want to show another picture. We might need to dim these lights again, then we can bring it back up again. But I don't know how many of you recognize who this is. This is Usain Bolt and Mohamed Farah. Now, which one looks like the gold medalist? Okay, the big guy, right? Usain Bolt. The truth is they both won gold in different distances. Usain won gold in the 100-meter dash. Mohamed Farah won gold in the 5,000-meter run. It takes a very different body type to want, run 5,000 meters than it does to run 100 meters. They both won gold, but in different events. So if you look at someone like you say, and you say, man, I wish I was an athlete like him. Well, God gave him the body type to do that kind of race. He gave Muhammad the body type to do that kind of race. In the same way, God has given you unique abilities and talents and skills because he has a unique assignment for you. And if you compare yourself to somebody else and say, I wish I was like them, it's like, well, but I gave them a different assignment. So it's ridiculous for Muhammad to, Muhammad to compare himself to Usain. He's got a different body type. He's got a different kind of race to run. Same thing is with you. God has designed us for a unique assignment. The problem is when we compare, it's like we, we don't ever get after our assignment. That's why it says in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 10, we, however, Paul says, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. When we compare ourselves to someone, we're looking at another person's assignment and we're forgetting all about ours. Or as Paul says here, we're going beyond proper limits. We're going beyond the boundaries of what God has assigned to us, and we're now operating in, within the boundaries of what God has assigned somebody else. And God would look at us and say, what are you doing over here? I assigned you to go over to this field. What do you, they, they mow this field, you mow this field. That's why they get a bigger mower, you get a smaller one. Because it's, it's a different assignment. Paul is saying, if you're going to boast, which means, you know, feel good about what you're doing, then be sure it's by looking at how you're doing with the assignment God gave you, not by comparing yourself to the field he's given somebody else. 
And we would do this all the time. We see someone excel in some area that really is not our gift, and we think, oh, man, I wish I was like that. And God said, yeah, I gave them that gift so they could excel in that. I gave you a different gift so you could sell, excel in this. They probably want your gift, you want theirs. Would you just knock it off and get after the assignment that I've given you? <laughs> Start doing what I've asked you to do. And don't compare yourself to the field that I've given to somebody else. So we classify, then we compare for the purpose of number three, commending ourselves. This word means to stand beside someone and to approve of them or gain approval. So first we classify, we fix judgment by assigning a category to everyone. Then we compare, we decide judge, we measure ourselves, we measure ourselves by them. And we do all of this so that we don't have to stand alone. So that we can have something to point to and say, I do have value. But remember, we were created in the image of God. We're, we're like shadows. We don't have value just all by ourselves. Our true value comes from being attached to God. But, but we've gone our own way. Now we need someone to stand next to us and approve of us before we feel good about ourselves again. I don't know how many, how many of you remember this about the Peter Pan story, but do you remember why Peter Pan left Neverland? He was looking for a shadow. He was trying to find his shadow that had run away. And once he found the shadow and caught the shadow, he was trying to sew the shadow onto himself so it wouldn't leave again. It's a very interesting comparison to what's actually true about us. Separated from God, it's, it's as if the shadow has left the solid object that it was designed to be attached to. And now as a shadow, it's slinking around trying to find something that it can hide behind that's big enough. But nothing fits the outline of its shape because it's God. we are God's shadow. And so the mission, the reason Jesus left heaven was to find shadows and attach them back to their creator. Our true value comes from being attached to God. But we can't, we can't seem to find anything else to make it work. And that's because there is nothing else. We try to stand next to enough approval, enough people, and never is enough. If you get 10 million people to clap for you, it's still not big enough compared to God saying, well done. You can't stack up enough people to equal the outline of God's solid nature. 2 Corinthians 10, 17 through 18 then says this, but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. You can stack up all kinds of things and try to feel real good about yourself, but that doesn't, that's, not, that, that, that's not real. It's the one whom the Lord commends. If you want to know what is worth boasting about, it says, it's what God does and says, not what people do or say. Approval comes not from how many ever votes you've been able to secure for yourself, how many ever people like you or smile at you or clap at you or approve of you, but whether or not Jesus is standing right next to you in approval. Our shadow is simply too large for any number of people to cast. It's a God-sized image that we were made in. This is why the approved people will never be enough. Recently, about a year ago, my house was appraised because I was doing, needing to refinance it. So appraiser comes out, 
to establish the value of the house. How, do, how does an appraiser arrive at the market value of a house? Well, as that phrase says, whatever the market says. What is the market? The market is what other people think the house is worth. Doesn't matter what I think it's worth. It's what other people are paying for houses that are like mine in my neighborhood. That establishes its market value. And that goes up and down. Because what people are willing to pay for something or the value that people attach to something, that goes up and down. I mean, you see that in the stock market, you see it in the commodities market, you see it in real estate, up and down, up and down, up and down. So if we attach ourselves to what people are saying, our own sense of value is just going to go up and down depending on however much approval or disapproval we're getting at any point in time. But you know, there are some things in my house that have a value that is independent of the market. Let me show you a picture of one. This may be a little dark, but this is a piece of art. Actually, it's a painting. And this art um, was given to my wife and I by my son and his wife. They bought this piece of art on a missions trip in Ecuador. And I don't, I don't know how much they paid for it. I, didn't, I don't really care. I don't know how much it's worth, how much anyone else would pay for this in the market. But I don't care. It has value to me. Why? Because of who gave it to me? Because of what it represents. My son and daughter-in-law gave this to me. And they bought it on a mission trip in Ecuador, so it reflects their heart to be a part of seeing God's kingdom expand to the nations. That's precious to me. That's value to me. It, it has a value beyond whatever the art market says it's worth. So if my house burns down, I have insurance. They can replace my house. You know, like Dan and Pat, they have insurance. But what was hardest for them is the things that insurance can't replace. Things like this. You've got, you've got things like this already. Scripture tells us the world will eventually burn. But you know what God wants to rescue from this world? Handcrafted pieces of art like you guys. That's what he wants to rescue. And like the students you go to school with and the people you walk by on a daily basis. We, we are a treasure to God. He wants us. So stop wishing you were a different piece of art. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make copies. He only creates original pieces of art. And that's why it says in this verse, we do not dare, it starts out, to do this. Why does it say that? Because it's insulting to God. He's handcrafted you for a purpose, and now you want to be somebody else? Don't you dare. Don't you dare slander the work of God. God has made you the way he's made you. He's given you gifts. He's given you an assignment. And you say, I really wish I was like them. What does that say to God? So don't you dare do that. Instead, find out the field that he's given you to work. Keep your head down. And work it. Reconcile in Christ and stay as close to the Father as you can throughout your life. And you'll come to know over time, no matter what people think of you, no matter what they say, God wants you. Specifically, not generally. And the people you walk by and the people you interact with, they're handcrafted pieces of art too. He wants them. That's why 
He asks us to be his ambassadors. And he's committed to us this message. Because in this world right now, people are scrambling to find whatever current blade of grass is big enough to hide behind. And they're not. They're just a piece of grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. But we know that we've been made in the image of God. And we can stand next to the one who created us. And understand our value. So let's pray. Father, we, um, we just need to pause right now and ask you to forgive us for the countless number of times where we looked around us and complained about who we were and wished we were somebody else, wished our situation was different, wished our appearance was different, wished our financial situation was different, wished our gifts were different. And in doing that, we said to you that we didn't like what you made. And we're so sorry. We foolishly have tried to establish our worth by things that won't last. And now we run to you. And we thank you for creating us in your image, for giving us the gifts you've given us, the history you've given us, the pain you've given us, the pressure you've given us, the broken plans you've given us. And with the confidence that comes from that, we, we want to move into our world and rescue and be a part of rescuing as many pieces of precious art as you allow us to. Change us, we pray, by the very fact that you want us. Break our hearts for the people around us. Help us to work with them for their joy. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.